without a doubt, I can say the Panhandle Pines Historical Museum is a beloved institution. Mm -hmm. But we also have a phenomenal archives that has all of the papers of the XIT Ranch, which, you know, the XIT Ranch was used to build the state capitol. We have tremendous references about Quanta Parker. When H.C. Gwynn wrote his book, Empire of the Summer Moon, he said, there's no other museum like it in Texas. He said, this is simply, he said, you can go any place else you want to go, but I'm telling you, the Panhandle Pines Historical Museum is the best Welcome to Why West Texas, a show about the incredible people and amazing places in our region. This podcast will tell the stories of influencers who have tapped the towering potential of the flatlands. Welcome to episode number five of Why West Texas. I'm Cade Wilcox, your host, and today we are joined by the director of the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, the largest museum in Texas, uh, located in Canyon. So, Carol, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm thrilled to be here today. Thank you for coming Good. to Canyon. Why don't you tell uh, our listeners just a little bit about your background and your story and, and your family and um, just all, kind, all, all the good stuff? Well, if you've been in this area long enough, you hear lots of people who say, oh, I came to the museum on a train with my sack lunch and ate lunch in the basement. And I was one of those pioneers that came on the train and ate lunch in the basement, brought my sack lunch when I was in kindergarten. That was well over 50 years ago. And I've loved the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum since then. In the 1990s, I served on the board of the museum. It was the first time I ever said to somebody, I'd like to serve on that board. What do I do to get to be on That's that great. board? That's great. And I loved my time on the board, and I had young children, and so I went off and sped, spent time with them when it was hard for me to be at afternoon meetings. And then I came back and served again on the board in 2010 as president of the board. And then I was doing other things with the museum, volunteering in different ways. And when the director left the museum to go to another position in Fort Worth, they asked me if I could step in and be interim director. And I thought, surely I could do that for a short amount of time because I had great respect for the staff and I knew how the museum operated. And so I stepped in and that was two years ago, That's almost awesome. exactly today. So where were you coming uh, to Canyon from on a train? I mean, Amarillo. Okay. So at that time they had a train and it would bring you to yes. Canyon? Yeah. They, well, the trains would take you everywhere, but they would, they ran between Amarillo and Canyon. This has nothing to do with our podcast, but when did that stop? Like when, like, when did you stop being able to get from place to place on a train you here know, regionally? You know, I'm not a good judge on that because I know my husband, he grew up and his grandfather worked for the Santa Fe Railroad, okay. which that was a big badge of honor. Uh-huh. And he rode the train from Santa, from Amarillo to Slayton. Wow. And I know when I was growing up, my mother was from Michigan and we rode the train from Amarillo to Detroit. And that would have been in the early 60s. Okay. 
but I can't give you the exact date of when. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that it seems to be kind of commonplace back then and now. I don't. I mean, I'm unless I've just been living under a rock. I don't think. I don't think there's anywhere you can get regionally on a train. Is there? Around here? Not around here. Sure, that I other know parts of, of the country right. for other sure. Other parts of the country. Yeah, but not not in West Texas. You can go. You can get Amtrak out of Albuquerque. Okay. And you can get Amtrak in East Texas. Okay. In South Texas. Huh. That's but fascinating. There, there's a, always a lot of talk about trying to get Amtrak in Amarillo. Okay. And the That's possibility. Well, like I said, didn't have anything. I just fascinated me because it's been a long time. So, so you you got into this current work by volunteering and you were on the board, but. What gave you an early fascination about about uh, West Texas's history, um, about the the, the museum uh, I- itself? Like, what what sparked that interest in you? I think it's I just like a good story, okay. and there are just so many good stories yeah. here. My grandmother came to Amarillo in 1900. Her father was a telegraph operator on the Pecos Valley Line Railroad, in this it was he- here then. And I would ask her at night when I'd spend the night, I'd say, tell me a story about when you were a little girl. So the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum just led right into hearing those stories. That's awesome. So tell, tell me about her. You said she came here a long time ago. And so tell, tell us one of the stories you remember her, her sharing with you, um, you know, as a little kid and you're interested in her pioneering day, so to speak. So, do any memories jump out to you? I remember she said that Amarillo had one stoplight. I remember that she said that her brother had a prairie dog as a pet, oh, wow. and that when it would rain, the the family dog would go outside and get the prairie dog and bring the prairie dog inside. Oh my! I remember just how small Amarillo was then, and when you hear a lot of the names, when you hear about. Rosalie and Rosalind Cornelius, who were the first twins born here, they were friends of my grandmother's. That's awesome. That's really great. I uh, one of my favorite things to do with my grandparents um, was same thing. You know, just asking about when they they were kids, which is you know they both passed now. It was a long time ago, and my favorite stories were about the Dust Bowl. Um, they both vividly remember that, and so. Uh, consequently, the Dust Bowl has become one of my favorite things to read about and to study. I have big, huge black and white canvases in my office of the Dust Bowl, and um, and so I'm sure I'm sure you heard some some really in, uh, incredible stories. You know, when you think about the pioneers who who settled West Texas, who uh, endured the hardships. I mean, what what are some of uh, whether they're people or whether there are time frames in our history that are most influential to you as you've been able to kind of study the Great Plains and and our really unique history. Well, as far as not necessarily a time period, but as far as people, Hattie Anderson was the woman who started the Panhandle Plains Historical Society. Okay. She came to Canyon in 1921. She came from Missouri. She was a single woman. She was very well educated, and she came here to teach history. She came from Missouri. And Missouri had a very successful historical society. And at that time period, there was a big concept that people were really grasping that was that the West was settled, that there was nothing left, that we had conquered everything, and that the West was over. And there was no more room for westward expansion. And so with uh, that idea in mind, she wanted to start the Panhandle Plains Historical Society. And she and the head of the history department 
they put the Panhandle Pines Historical Society together, and she was the driving force. And they went to Austin, and they had it incorporated, and they had the organization, and it was students and professors. And they started studying history, talking about history, and their main emphasis was on collecting stories. Okay. And so they started collecting stories of the pioneers who lived here because they really were pioneers because this area started being settled in about the 1880s. And so they started collecting those stories, and then people started saying to them, well, you know, I've got some things I could give you. And so they started taking artifacts, and then it reached a point where the university, which at that time was just one building, was being overtaken by all of the things that people wanted to share with the museum. And so then they came up with the idea that they needed to build a building. And by that time, it was 1929. And when they started out with the idea of building a building, things were looking pretty good, but then they took the big dive. And so the building did not open its doors until the 14th of April, 1933. And we have pictures of people streaming into the building. And it makes me so happy because we just celebrated on April the 14th, 2018, 85 years from the day that the museum opened, we celebrated the 85th anniversary of this building. And Hattie Anderson, the woman who had the vision for this building and for the Historical Society, her two great nephews were here to celebrate the anniversary. And we had people streaming in the door. So it was a great day. That's really cool. You know, I don't know if, if our listeners are like me, but, you know, I, I can't say I know how a museum works. I don't know how a museum is funded. I don't know how you determine, you know, what you take and what you don't. You know, just give us some insight. I mean, because this is like a, you know, a legitimate organization. You have staff. I mean, it, you know, it, it has to function. And so tell us a little bit about how a museum works and, you know, how it all kind of comes to life. One of the things that helps people understand this museum is if you look at the name on the front of the building, it says the Panhandle Plains Historical Society Museum. And she started the Panhandle Plains Historical Society. And what she wanted to do was capture the stories of the Panhandle Plains. And a lot of times people think we are just the Panhandle, but we are the Plains. We extend into New Mexico. We extend into Oklahoma. We extend up into Kansas. And we extend almost down to Lubbock. And so we're telling the story of that region. So when people come to us and they say, I have this wonderful saw that was in the garage that belonged to my great-grandfather, and he used it to chop wood in upstate New York, we say, thank you very much, but that doesn't really pertain to us. Yeah. But when someone comes to us like they did just this week, and says, I have stories that go all the way back to the beginning of Canyon and a quilt that's been in our family since the early 1900s and was made by somebody who lived here in Canyon. We say, bring it on and we will look at that. But somebody brings something to the museum and first we have to establish if it's relevant to this area. 
And then we have to see what we have and what they have. And we have over 2 million items that belong to the museum. So if you have a treadle sewing machine that you'd like to give us, we'll probably say, thank you very much for thinking of us, but we already have a lot of treadle sewing machines. If you have a uniform that's from World War II that somebody who lived in this region, who was in the Army, will probably say, we have a number of Army uniforms. But if you say, I have an uncle who was from Stratford who was in the Coast Guard, unusual as that might be, we'll say, we need a Coast Guard uniform. Mm, that's great. That's, that's really cool. So what does your staff look like? I mean, what is your staff made up? Like when you get certain things, what's the process look like uh, in terms of what you go through to determine if that item is truly unique or something you don't already have? I mean, what, is, what does that look like? We have a, I'll start out by saying we have a very small staff. We have a staff of 17, which compared to many museums, that's a very small staff. And our very small staff puts out a tremendous amount of work. But we have a person who's named the registrar. Her name is Maggie Malone. And she is responsible for keeping track of something that comes into the museum. But the decision on if we're going to take something that someone offers the museum First, it goes to the curator for that area. If it's Western heritage, if it's art, if it's archaeology, if it's what we now call ethnology, that would be things that we would consider Native American, we have curators over those areas. And we, have, we do not have many curators, but they cover a number of areas. And so they will be the first person who will look at something and who will say, I think this would fit into our collection and I think this would be valuable. And then the registrar studies it, learns more about it, takes the history of it, looks to see if we have anything like that that's in our collection. Then there's a meeting where all of the registrars meet or the registrar and all of the curators and the archivists, they meet and they talk about what this item is and if we need this and if it's relevant to the museum. And then after that committee meets, then there's a committee that's made up of members of the Panhandle Plains Historical Society who they hear the recommendation of the staff and then even after that, it goes on to the Panhandle Pines Historical Society Board of Trustees, and they make the final decision. So it's quite the extensive process. I it mean, is quite. It's not just that somebody oh, that looks cool. says, Let's let me take that to the museum. <laughs> I'm sure they want right, that. It's right. a process. What, uh, what role does the museum play? I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating. It's the largest museum in Texas. Largest which, history, history museum. History museum. Mm -hmm. Okay, in okay. Texas. So what role does, does the museum here play on uh, kind of in a statewide level? And then what role do you think uh, the museum plays here, here locally in terms of our own sense of place and things like that? Well, first I'll say that the museum is very respected across the state, and it's respected for several reasons. Since 1928, we have published the Panhandle Pines Historical Review, which is a scholarly journal that is about the history of this region. 
and that review has been published without ceasing since 1928. Mm -hmm. And that is a very highly respected endeavor right there in the quality of the Panhandle Pines Historical Review. Our curators are very well respected throughout the state for the depth and the breadth of their knowledge. The museum is very well liked because we lend, because we have two million items and we can't possibly put all of those things on display. And we loan to museums across the state. We frequently loan to the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin, but we have things that are around the world. We're a very big participant in a program called Art in Embassies, which is through the United States government. And for example, Kay Bailey Hutchison, who is the United States permanent delegate to NATO right now, and she's living in Brussels, and she wanted Texas art to hang in her apartment and in her office. And we have a phenomenal collection of early Texas art, which is some of the early artists from the state of Texas. And we supply art to the art and embassies, and we they were packing up art to send it to Brussels. That just is amazing. The other day. What, what do you think the chances of y'all uh, decorating my office in Lubbock with some art like that? I think maybe you might have to meet a few criteria. <laughs> okay. So uh, a delegate to Bre or uh, yeah, the tornado. Okay, that's but that's what really what cool. The pieces that we have that's hanging right now is called the approaching herd and it's by Frank Ray, and he was considered the Dean of Texas Artists, and we have his the collection from his estate. And the approaching herd was requested by the Bushes, and it hung in the Oval Office when George H.W. was president. That's amazing. So, so this museum here in Canyon has really... Uh, large, you know, implications across not just the state but the world. That's, yeah, it do, yes, people, it very definitely. Do you find that people in in West Texas and the Plains understand the asset that we have here? I mean, do you think, generally speaking, that that people who are used to driving by or maybe they've heard it once or twice, do you think that that, that most people around here really understand kind of the size and scope of of the work here and and what it means to people really everywhere, not just here locally? I don't think they understand in an academic sense, they love the museum. Without a doubt, I can say the Panhandle Pines Historical Museum is a beloved institution. Really but we also have a phenomenal archives that has all of the papers of the XIT Ranch, which, you know, the XIT Ranch was used to build the state capitol. We have tremendous references about Quanta Parker, when H.C. Gwynn wrote his book, Empire of the Summer Moon, he said, there's no other museum like it in Texas. He said, this is simply, he said, you can go any place else you want to go, but I'm telling you, the Panhandle Pines Historical Museum is the best museum. What, how many people visit the museum a year, roughly? Do you, do you have an idea? Not as many as you might think. We would like more. We have about 60,000 a 60, year. 60,000? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what of that sixty thousand? Are, are the bulk of that from from outside our area? Is it split down the middle? I mean, we're what's... heavily weighted towards this area. Okay. You know, the hardest thing we have to do is try to get people to stop on their way to Colorado. Yeah. You yeah, know, they're just sure. got the foot on the accelerator, yeah, and we just gotta by. get there tonight. What role do you think the museum has in preserving our own sense of place? I mean, um, you know, we have this incredible history here locally. And, you know, what, 
what's y'all's role or what, what do you believe to be the, the museum's responsibility in terms of, you know, preserving sense of place? Because, you know, culture is rapidly changing. Society is rapidly changing for a variety of reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what kind of role you think the museum has in preserving, you know, preserving our story and, and, and preserving, you know, what, what many West Texans have always had a, a deep sense of place here. We do have a very important role in doing that. And we still, we, when I talk about saying my grandfather had a uniform from World War II, we want the uniforms from World War II, but we want the uniforms from Iraq and Afghanistan and the current things that are happening because yesterday is today's history lesson. Right. And we have an exhibit right now, a pop culture exhibit. We have bedrooms that represent decades from the 50s up through the 1990s. And those are the exhibits that people look at and say, oh my gosh, I could have given you my Instamatic camera. I could have given you my flip phone. I had no idea that was history, but we're still recording that history. And we have photographs on the wall of the first African-American woman who received her master's degree from West, what was then West Texas State University. We have lists of soldiers from the Panhandle who were killed in action in the Korean War, things that people relate to in a different way than they do what we consider the history of the West. Right. That's really powerful. That's really powerful. What do you love about West Texas? You've been here all your life. You grew up listening to your grandma talk about, you know, Amarillo and West Texas when she came here. I mean, what are what are some of West Texas qualities and characteristics that, you know, have, have helped you fall in love with West Texas and now have this really important role of preserving its history and, and, and telling its stories? Well, the first thing when anybody says, what do I love? The first thing I love is the sunset. Yeah, that's We just have the most beautiful sunsets, and I love the wide open spaces. I love to be out at dusk or at sunrise and hear the birds. And I just realized that when you are in the Panhandle Plains, it's really easy to find a place where you don't hear any traffic. You can accomplish that, and you can accomplish that a lot of other places, and that's a tremendous benefit. But I also am fascinated by the concept that people in this part of the country have a can-do attitude because I think they know that if they don't do it, it might not get done. Yeah, that's powerful and very true. And and uh, your your museum is full of those stories, right, of the pioneers who saw a tremendous opportunity when a great deal of people wouldn't have seen any opportunity. Exactly. And so I, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Well it's it's been really great for us to be with you today. Really appreciate your time. I kinda have a lightning round for you and it's All just right. one word one word answers here. But uh where's your favorite place to eat in West Texas? Oh gosh, that, I have so Everyone many. Gets, okay, yeah, favorite place the, to eat in Canyon happens. right now would be Barrel and Pie. Okay, I had that for lunch today, so I'm glad you brought that up. Queso or guacamole? Oh, guacamole. Okay, we're we're not getting any quesos here recently. I can't believe it. I'm a well, queso yes, guy. Well, yes, my children. I think my children they would, would say go queso? for queso. Oh yeah, that's good. Mexican food or good old uh, steak? Steak. Steak. Favorite music? 
Oh, Bob Wills. Bob Wills, there you go. That's great. And last one, favorite movie of all time. Oh, my goodness, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. That's a great one. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for the great work you're doing here at the museum um, and, and to all your staff. I mean, this is a real treasure uh, of West Texas and the Plains, and so we hope you'll keep up the good fight and keep doing great work. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Cade. Yeah.